so just as a disclaimer to start, I know it's Easter, um, but we're going to go to some unusual places first, but trust me, we'll, we'll get to Easter. Um, but Wake always likes it when I start talking about C.S. Lewis, so I thought we'd start with the C.S. Lewis story. Um, so this time it's from the sixth of the seven Chronicles of Narnia, which is entitled The Silver Chair. And in this story, Prince Rillian, who's the heir to the throne of Narnia, has disappeared under suspicious circumstances. And as the story unwinds, it's discovered that he's been enchanted by the witch. And that is actually kind of hidden deep underground in this, this world that's populated by gnomes or earthmen, they call them, who have also been enchanted by the witch and forced by her to, to do their bidding, do her bidding. And, and her plan is for them to dig a tunnel under Narnia and come up and, and conquer the country. Um, so Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole and this strange creature called a Marsh Wiggle go looking for um, Prince Rillian and, and they find him guided by Aslan and um, the, the prince, they, they're able to break the enchantment and Prince Rillian kills the witch. And once they realize that the witch's power has been broken, these earthmen and gnomes start scurrying around and, and celebrating and rushing to dive down into the hot, dark depths of the earth, which they call Bism. And the group from Narnia somehow manages to capture one of these gnomes called Golg. And when he realizes they killed the witch, they, he realizes they're friends and begins talking with them. And the princess do you know the way to those new diggings, these tunnels are going to lead out into Narnia, by which the sorcerers meant to lead an army against Overland? Ah, said, cried Gold, yes, I know that terrible road. I'll show you where it begins, but there is no manner of use, Your Honor, in asking me to go with you on it. I'd rather die. Why, asked Eustace anxiously, what's so dreadful about it? Too near the top, the outside, said Gold, shuddering. That was the worst thing the witch did to us. We were going to be led out into the open, onto the outside of the world. They say there's no roof at all, only a horrible, great emptiness called the sky. And the diggings have gone so far that a few strokes of a pick would bring you out into it. I wouldn't dare go near them. Hurrah! Now you're talking, cried Eustace and Jill. It's not hard at all up there. We like it. We live there. I know you overlanders live there, said Gog, but I thought it was because you couldn't find your way down inside. You can't really like crawling around like flies on top of the world. Your honors, why don't you come down to Bism? You'd be happier there than on that cold, unprotected, naked country out on top. So the people from Narnia and these earth people were looking at the exact same circumstances, the exact same situation this dark, claustrophobic underground cavern and the light, airy, blue sky and countryside of Narnia, but their natural responses were opposite. The Earthmen were terrified of overland and being exposed on the surface of the world, but they found security being sheltered deep in the earth. We overlanders, if you will, we love fresh air and sunshine and, and spring coming to, to life around us, and we would feel suffocated down in the earth, and we'd be fearful of a collapse if we were underground. So our worldview shapes how we interpret and how we respond to our surroundings and to our circumstances. In the case of the Earthmen and the Narnians, their differing worldviews cause them to react in opposite ways. Although they were different, the worldviews of each worked for them, right? Because the 
the gnomes lived underground. They, you know, it, it worked for them to enjoy being underground because that's where they lived. And then the overlanders lived out on top and realized that wasn't so bad and scary either. And, and their worldview worked for them up there. In fact, once Gold described the wonders of, of the underworld, really, and actually thought about wanting to go there to visit. But we all know that, that our world is delightful and not fearful. Sometimes our worldviews and assumptions can be very wrong, just like the Earthmen's understanding of the overworld or our understanding of the underworld could be wrong. Our family is listening to the biography of Eric Little, who probably all know the Scottish runner who won the, the two or the 400 meter in, in the 20 or 1924 uh, Olympics in Paris. You may not know that he went on to be a missionary in China and he was there when the Chinese overran China in World War II. And since he was British, he was considered an enemy of Japan and was taken. Initially, he was confined within the British quarter of the city that he was living in. Um, but after a while, the people in that area were rounded up and taken to an internment camp. So the people living in that city, the British living in that city, were mainly wealthy business owners and aristocrats who led a very pampered life because in China, for a few pennies, they could hire a Chinese person to do anything that they found unpleasant. So, you know, they were the ones who did all the manual labor and they even did things like, you know, fill the bathtub for them because that was too much work for them. Um, so when they were to be moved from the city to the internment camp, the, the Japanese warned them, you know, pack up the belongings that you want to take to the internment camp, show up in the city square on this day and, and we'll take you to the camp. And Eric said that what people brought to that city square to take the internment camp was a window into their worldview. So there were all sorts of men in fancy suits with starched collars and women in furs and jewels and pearls. There was even carved kitchen or dining room tables and, and, and vanities. And one guy even brought his golf clubs and they were there and the Japanese showed up and said, well, anything you want to take, you've got to carry four miles to the railroad station. Um, so they left all that stuff behind. But what they brought was a picture of what they expected the internment camp to be like. It was very wrong. The internment camp ended up being 2,000 people living in uh, the space of two football fields with no running plumbing. So you can imagine what a shock that was. So their expectations were sort of a natural response of their worldview. They were used to being pampered, used to living wealthy lives, but they were totally out of step with the reality of what they were going to experience. So if you've been worshiping with us for the last few months, you know we're working our way through Luke, um, and we've reached a section of Luke 6, which the Bible entitles the Beatitudes... The words of Jesus that Luke captures here are not as extensive as the Beatitudes in Matthew, but they sort of give us a snapshot into the worldview of, of heaven, into the values of the kingdom of heaven. Luke writes, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to anyone who begs from you. 
And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, if you're like me, you read these words and your first response is, Jesus can't literally mean these things. I mean, taking at face value, what he's saying is nonsense, right? I mean, it, it would be as crazy as being preferred to be buried in caves miles underground and being terrified of a warm, sunny day, right? It, it's just, it's, a, it's as nonsensical as taking golf clubs to a POW camp. I mean, Jesus, those are nice ideas, and, and they might work in heaven, but they're totally impractical in real life. If someone hits me, I'm literally supposed to turn the other cheek and let him do it again? Are you kidding me? I mean, there are bullies who would pound me every day if I didn't defend myself. I'm supposed to let somebody steal from me and not do anything about it? I can't do that. I'd be taken advantage of, right? Isn't that what we say? And I know, okay, it's Sunday morning. It's Easter Sunday. We all have our Sunday clothes on. And so you'll say, oh, no, Jesus' words, yep, we would do those things, of course. But if we are honest about our natural response, we look out for ourselves. We look out for our own interests. That's our worldview. and, And we think that's the way it works. We think... Jesus' commands are totally out of step with the world that we live in. But are they? Does our worldview, does our natural response actually work better? Um, Is it in line with reality on earth? And is it in line with eternal reality? Jesus says, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. As we wish others would treat us. In other words, what's the best possible action in the circumstances? In our world, we say, treat others the way they treat you. If you're a good person, you might say that. If you're a little less religious, you might say, I'll do to others before they do unto me. If we don't, if we don't defend ourselves, it proves we're weak and just begs people to take advantage of us, right? You have to pay them back or you'll be forever attacked, right? The problem is that when we calculate paybacks, we tend to magnify our own injuries and losses as bigger than the ones of the the other people. So it's not just getting even, it's usually getting even plus a little more. You know, we dish out a little more than we got so the person knows they better not try it again. Um, When when Joshua, our son, was in in Bible school at, at Moody, his, he lived with a bunch of guys, and there was a, a women's house as well. And they got into a little spat, and I, I meant to get all the details from him, and we didn't connect. But I know it, it sort of started out, I think the girls planted some little rubber duckies around the guy's house sometime when they were visiting, and the guys decided they were going to get even. And I, I don't know what they did, but it went back and forth over the course of months and ultimately led to the point where they, they'd sort of locked down their houses so the other one couldn't get in, but they, they still came up with schemes so 
The girls knew the mom of one of the guys who kind of lived close by. So one day the mom showed up at the guy's house after most of them had gone to school with this big suitcase and said it was for one of the guys who was going on a trip and dropped it off. And after the last guy left the house, the suitcase unzipped and a girl climbed out with all sorts of stuff and totally desecrated their house. I mean, there were rubber duckies hidden everywhere and found for weeks to come. Um, so the guys, not to be outdone, knew the landlord of the, the house where the girls lived and were friends with him and got him to unlock the house so they could get in. And they blew up, it was at least a thousand, it may have been multiple thousand balloons. It was a two-story house. They filled the second story with balloons and then taped over the stairwell and filled the stairwell with balloons. So when they opened it, just a, an avalanche of balloons came down into the house. And afterwards, uh, the guys fortunately repented and went over there with their pocket knives and helped pop the balloons and clean up all the shards. But after that exchange, they decided they better not keep doing that because it would just get worse. And, and that's you know, kind of a funny story but look what's happening in Ukraine right now. I mean, NATO is fully supportive of Ukraine. We think what they're doing is, or what the Russians are doing there is just awful. But we're afraid to send some weapons in for fear that it will escalate to a nuclear war. Why? Because these things always get paid back a little bit more. Um, the whole idea of a nuclear deterrent is that not that we would exchange bombs, but that uh, you dare not slap my face because I will slap you back so hard you won't know what hit you. We're fearful. So, so it leaves us just fearfully eyeing each other, waiting for the first blow. So while Jesus' worldview seems upside down and like it would never work in the real world, our worldview doesn't work so well either. Maybe ours is the one that's upside down. It seems logical to us because it's what we grew up with, but it actually doesn't work all that well. And God knows how he designed the world to work. And really, that's the real world. So in Jesus' ministry, and especially in the events of Easter, his death and resurrection, we see that upside-down worldview on display. Mark tells us, about Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. So Jesus knew ahead of time what was going to happen to him, and he knew who was going to do it. He described the coming events to his disciples, and using today's logic, the correct action would have been to stay away from Jerusalem and probably get out of the country. I mean, there were plenty of people in the world who needed his ministry. Why throw his life away, especially when there's so much more work to be done? I mean, wouldn't that be logical from our perspective? But Jesus does what seems upside down to us. He sets his face to walk into the clutches of his enemies. As, so Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, and John reports, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So John here gives us a glimpse into the very thoughts, into the very mind of Jesus, what he knew, to point out this amazing picture of how upside down this foot washing was. Jesus knew that the hour had come. He knew that in the next 24 hours, he would be tortured to the limit of human endurance. He would be cruelly killed on the cross. And for the first time in eternity, he would face separation from the rest of the Trinity. If we were in that situation, wouldn't we want to be pampered and cared for? Wouldn't we want to just, you know, protect ourselves a little bit? We'd want other people to feel sorry for us and be taking care of us. But in an upside-down fashion, Jesus ministered. He cared for people around him. John points out that Jesus knew who he was, that he was God incarnate, the all-powerful creator of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords, and infinitely above any human greatness. By all rights, Caesar should be groveling in the mud at Jesus' feet. But Jesus stripped himself down to his undergarments and took the role of the lowest of servants to wash his disciples' feet. And that isn't just sort of a, a sweet tradition where everybody shows up with their pedicured toes and clean feet and, and get them washed. It was a necessary practice in those days. They were walking on dirt roads that were shared with sheep and cattle and horses and camels. And if you've ever followed behind these creatures, you know there's more than just dirt to step on. And if that isn't offensive enough, remember this is before they came up with indoor plumbing. So getting rid of human excrement was also a problem. And you can imagine that that was mixed in. And so washing feet was an essential task, but it was performed by the lowest servant in the household. And of course, being God, Jesus didn't have to do that. I mean, he could have called angels to come and wash his disciples' feet. He commanded sickness and, and demons to leave people. He could have commanded the dirt to leave them. But in God's upside-down kingdom, the ruler of all humbled himself to do this distasteful task on the night before his greatest sorrow. But it gets even stranger. Jesus also knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas, you know, we, the guy, he was probably always in the shadows and always kind of... Judas was one of the disciples. He was one of the friends. He'd spent three years daily in Jesus' presence. For some reason, Judas wasn't content with that. Maybe he was trying to push Jesus to establish his kingdom sooner than uh, Jesus seemed to be moving. Perhaps the money was more important. We don't really know. But in human terms, Judas was a traitor. He was a backstabber. He condemned a friend to death for the sake of personal gain. I mean, that's the vilest of enemies. Jesus knew that it was Judas. He knew fully what he was about to do. And Jesus knelt in front of him and washed his feet. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
pray for those who abuse you. That's what it looks like. Remember in the garden when the religious leaders and soldiers came to arrest Jesus? Jesus actually walked out to meet them. He didn't run away. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Talk about an upside-down kingdom. Jesus makes no defense against his enemies. He tells his friends not to defend him. And he goes and heals the one enemy who was wounded in, in the skirmish. Then when he's falsely accused, he makes no defense. When he's nailed to the cross, he prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I honestly suspect he was praying for the soldiers who were whipping him and mocking him and beating him. Why did Jesus embrace unjust torture and death? To rescue us. Now don't start thinking, well, of course Jesus would want to rescue a nice guy like me. We're every bit as much a traitor and enemy as Judas. God has lovingly provided everything we need for life, all the food, all the shelter, our health, the sunshine, the air we breathe. And for most of us, he's provided abundantly with blessings far above and beyond mere survival. We have comfort, we have beauty, we have love, we have pleasure. But in our sinful state, we raise a fist at God and curse him. We pretend to be nice, but every time we sin, we align with Jesus' worst enemy, with Satan. Every time we value the gifts that he has given us more than the God, the giver, we turn them into idols that we worship. We take the honor that God is due and give it to lifeless created things. That, that is who we are. That, if we are honest, that's who we are. Jesus suffered and died to rescue those kind of people to rescue you, to rescue me from eternal death that we richly deserve. It's a rescue that we weren't even wise enough to seek on our own. But Jesus embraced torture and death to save miserable wretches like us. So how upside down is that? Passage in Luke 6 that we already read, let's look at it again in light of these last 24 hours that I've kind of highlighted. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To those who strike you on the cheek, offer the other also. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus modeled what he taught. Now you say, well, see, I told you this upside-down thing doesn't work. Because look what happened to Jesus. That didn't turn out so well. I mean, he was tortured and beaten and killed. It just proves this love-your-enemy stuff is ridiculous. It doesn't really work. And that comment would depend on your view of the end game. What's, what's on the horizon? If death is your horizon, if death is the end, then you'd be right. Jesus', Jesus approach to work or to life didn't work. He died a miserable death with essentially nothing to show for his 33 years of life. But Hebrews 12 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So what was the joy that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? 
What was the thrilling expectation that allowed him to despise the shame of being labeled as a criminal and nailed naked to a post in the ground for all the world to taunt and mock? At least part of that joy is what we're celebrating today, the Resurrection Sunday. Jesus knew that his death on the cross was not the end. It was just a transition. It was just a door back to the life he'd known forever. It was opening the way for us to enter into that life that he had known. Three days after the horror, he rose again with a new and better body, one that felt no pain, one that would never die, one that could do cool things like walk through doors and disappear. I mean, how awesome is that? And he lives eternally. He reigns as the glorious Lord in all the splendor and delight in the throne room of heaven. Jesus also has the joy of his father's delight, the joy and satisfaction of successfully accomplishing something hard yet incredibly valuable and having his father slap him on the back and beam with pride and say, well done, my son. And I believe for him the greatest joy of all was to redeem us from the slavery to sin so that we could enjoy him forever, delighting in his splendor, awestruck with the wonders of heaven and the pleasures that are ours as God's children. So if you will, Jesus did the cost-benefit analysis and concluded that the eternal joys far outweighed the temporary agony of the cross. In fact, he despised it as not even worth consideration compared to what he would gain by enduring it. So what about us? What about you and me? How are we supposed to live these upside-down principles in a world that's full of sinful people who are happy to hurt us, lie, cheat, steal to get ahead, Well, that's the same world that Jesus lived in, and Jesus provides an example. A few weeks before his own death, Jesus received word that his friend Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, which was just a few miles outside Jerusalem, was sick. And Jesus announced to his disciples that he was going to see Lazarus. And John tells us the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees by the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Jesus had recently left the area around Jerusalem because of the persecution of of the Jewish leaders. They were threatening to kill him. And his disciples, looking to protect their master, tried to discourage him from going back to heal Lazarus, to raise him from the dead. From a human perspective, it was far too risky. It would be foolhardy. In fact, when Jesus insisted on going, Thomas actually said, let us also go that we may die with him. So the disciples were expecting the worst. But Jesus was fearless. Why? For that matter, why was Jesus fearless in the middle of this storm that threatened to swamp the the boat on the Sea of Galilee when he was surrounded by experienced seamen who were fearing the worst? Why was Jesus willing to touch a contagious leper? Why did Jesus give himself into the hands of his tormentors? Because he was walking in the day. Jesus didn't need to be fearful about his circumstances because he knew his Father controls all things and that nothing could happen to him that the Father didn't allow. His security was in the Father, not in his ability to defend himself or in his own wisdom or cunning or in his bank account or in his insurance policy. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have savings and that you shouldn't have insurance policies, but 
they can become bad if we put them ahead of God. If we if our hope is in them rather than in God. Is our hope anchored in the Lord? God is so much more reliable than anything we can hope in. If we're walking with him, and, and that's a key, we're not doing something crazy for our own purposes, but if we're striving to obey him, we can trust in his protection and provision. That he'll provide the grace we need to endure the hardship that he'll take, where he'll take us home to be with him. That's what gave Jesus the boldness to return to Jerusalem in the face of death threats. And that's what gives us the boldness to turn the other cheek in the face of a threatened assault. When Jesus told his disciples that he was headed back to Jerusalem to die, Mark records that Jesus called the crowd and the disciples to him and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? As Christians, we like to say we're followers of Jesus. Here in Mark, Jesus tells us where we're going. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In the past, I've tended to look at that as a, as a death march. You know, it's this miserable thing that we have to endure. Um, to suffer and die. But I'm afraid my focus was that of the world. In preparing this sermon, I think, honestly, Jesus said this with a tone of excitement and enthusiasm in his life. Like, boys, there's the door to eternal delights over there. Let's go. The way is narrow, and it has some tough spots, but it's well worth it. C.S. Lewis describes us as children playing in a mud puddle in a squalid slum Our parents want to take us for a holiday at the sea, and we scream and fuss about leaving our mud puddle. We're busy trying to extract as much joy as possible out of this mud puddle of a life that we're clinging desperately to, and Jesus says our focus is wrong. He says, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the good of having the whole mud puddle if you miss out on going to the beach Even if we could have the whole world with every delight and pleasure that this world has to offer, Jesus said, it's not worth it. Nothing in this world compares with eternity with him. In addition to not being worthwhile, this earth stuff is really a trap. And if you've been doing the Bible reading with us um, that we're going through as a church, the last few days you've been reading in Hosea. And in Hosea, God says that he lovingly gave Israel all sorts of good gifts. All the pleasures, all the the wealth, the food that they needed. And they turned those things into idols. And loved the gifts instead of loving him. And we have that same tendency to take earth stuff and make it ultimate stuff. And God never intended it to be that. It becomes the thing we love most. Our source of joy, our hope for security. And that's why... There's a risk of forfeiting our soul if we focus on earth stuff. Jesus says the way to life is to die to that stuff. Don't let it control us. Don't look to it for security. If you have it, hold it loosely with an open hand. In the passage that we already referred to in Hebrews, 
The writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. The writer of Hebrews calls us to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus never got bogged down with earth stuff and sin, so the writer calls us to shed that stuff that weighs us down. The things of earth that we're tempted to cling to the sin that clings to us, that weighs us down, die to those things. And in the example of Jesus, we have our why. Why, why would we set those things aside? Why We like those things. Why would we give them up? For the joy set before him. For the joy set before us. This isn't a hardship. This is pursuing joy. If there is great joy, if there is great joy at the end of the journey for Jesus... How much greater joy should there be for us? Look at the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the mud puddle we're living in. But it's far worse than a mud puddle. It's actually a slippery slope. Maybe it's a slope of mud that we're sliding down with one destination. Hell itself, literally. That's where we're headed if we're not following Jesus. Jesus never had God's wrath in his future, yet he found great joy in the prospect of returning to heaven. How much greater should our joy be at the prospect of heaven when our alternative is feeling the full fury of the wrath of God. Paul goes on, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, part of the joy in front of him was returning to heaven and being seated on the throne in the throne room of heaven. And how awesome is that? And Paul says that in God's rich mercy and love, we are seated with Jesus. And that God will spend eternity showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That's incredible. And unless we think it's a mistake, Paul says very similar in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't understand what it means to be a fellow heir with Jesus. I, I just can't bring myself to conclude that... that that I can be an heir with him. And yet that's what, that's what it says. They were seated in the heavenly throne room with him. But one thing that is clear and that I am totally confident of, 
that the joys of heaven that Jesus was looking forward to that empowered him to endure the cross, they're the same joys that are waiting for us. Jesus also had the joy of rescuing us. Perhaps that's a joy that we don't share. We, we won't save everybody who's going to be spared from wrath. Um, but we can share in the joy of sharing him with others, of leading others to follow him. And besides that, if Jesus, the rescuer, has joy in saving us, how much greater should our joy be at being rescued? Isn't the joy of the person rescued greater than, than that of the rescuer? So the joy ahead of Jesus enabled him to endure the hostility from sinful men and the agony of the cross. And the writer of Hebrews calls us to reflect on his example so that you, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know, some would say, that's just pie in the sky. We don't even know if it's real. I mean, how do you know that you don't just die and become worm food and that's the end of it? Well, that's what we're celebrating today. Because of Easter. Jesus demonstrated that there's life after death by rising from dead from the dead and then arising bodily into heaven. Jesus demonstrated that he had conquered death, not just for himself, but for all who follow him on that narrow path to ultimate joy. You know, if you're here thinking, you know, I'm not sure I'm on that narrow path. I think maybe I'm still playing in the mud puddle. You know, every one of us are sinners. We all rebel against God. We all insist on doing things our own way. We all do things that hurt other people and hurt ourselves. And although God loves us, he calls those things sin. And he says sin cannot coexist with his holiness. It's just a fact of nature. Just like light and darkness can't coexist, sin and holiness can't coexist. And God is also just. And that means he has to punish sin. Sin has to be paid for, and the price is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. We would be destroyed if we came into his presence in our sinful state. And we're excluded from his presence. If we're excluded from his presence, the only alternative is literally hell, is eternal death. But God, in his loving mercy, came to earth in Jesus Christ and poured out his righteous wrath on him, on the cross. Jesus took that punishment that we deserve so that his righteousness could be counted for us. His sinless blood can cover over our sin so that we can come into the presence of God. And when we do, God sees the righteousness of Christ, not the sinfulness of Ken. He offers that blood to us as a free gift if we'll just cry out. Our cry is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when we do, we leave our mud puddle of sin and follow Jesus on that path of eternal joy. And if you're not sure where you stand with that, please talk to me, talk to one of the elders. Talk, if that's too threatening, talk to somebody else who, who brought you here or who you know. Uh, we'd be happy to tell you how to follow Jesus on the path of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Easter. Lord, thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for the example you set of what it means to pursue the path of life with joy because of the joy before us. Thank you for 
the hope that that gives us in the midst of, of our hardship. Lord, thank you for the promise of resurrection and of eternity with you, seated on the throne with you. In Jesus' name, amen.